Section zero of Quatrains of Omar Khayyam of Nishapur. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Algie Pug. Quatrains of Omar Khayyam of Nishapur by Omar Khayyam. Translated by Eben Francis Thompson. Section zero. Introduction and Preface The Quatrains of Omar Khayyam of Nishapur Translated from the Persian into English verse Including quatrains now for the first time so rendered By Eben Francis Thompson With an introduction by Nathan Haskell Dole Privately printed, 1906 Introduction since most foreign words, especially those expressing abstract qualities, cannot be adequately represented each by any one exact equivalent, it is evident that no translation of a masterpiece can be perfectly satisfactory. That is why so many are stimulated to keep trying to make an advance in accuracy, in felicity of phrase, in form, over the translations that have already been offered to the public. Thus, in Homer, we find the version in rhymed couplets, in blank verse, in ballad form, in hexameters, in rhythmic prose, in Spenserian stanzas, and the student will find, in each successive attempt to represent the original, something to praise and something to blame. The ideal can never be attained, because one language can never be another language. A hundred persons may try to put into English verse an ode of Horace, or such a lyrical gem as Heine's Du bist wie eine Blume, but in each case the crux will arise in such a phrase as simplex munditiis, or in such a word as vemut, which do not mean quite what the lexicon attempts to give as the definition. This may be said with even more emphasis of oriental works, where a far more subtle connotation is inherent in word and combination of words. It has been unfortunate that the majority of those who have attempted to translate Arabian and Persian poetry have not been poets. They have laboured to show the Western world what treasures were stored away in the Haft Kulzum and other marvellous compilations, in divans made up of vividly coloured rubaiyat, in ghazals and epilogues, but as soon as they laid hand on the gorgeous coloured fabric, the magic vanished, just as in dichromic minerals, where there is beautiful translucency or exquisite colour viewed in one direction, but muddy opacity viewed in another. Those bald and frigid translations have their value, but they merely prepare the way for the true poet-interpreter to come. Until Fitzgerald gave us his immortal paraphrase, no one would have suspected from the dull and lifeless specimens of Omar's verse that may be found scattered here and there through the misrepresented literature of the Orient that the astronomer-poet was worthy of a moment's attention. Fitzgerald's eyes were opened, and although his knowledge of Persian was neither very wide nor very deep, he had the genius to detect the marvellous poetry concealed in the crabbed manuscripts of the Bodleian and Calcutta libraries. He can be hardly said to have translated Omar's quatrains. So much of himself and his own thought he infused into his work, but nevertheless one cannot doubt that if the tent-maker were to return to earth and become cognizant of what had been done, he would have marked it with the seal of his approval. He would have said, This is an interpretation. It is I. Of course, the nearer a translation approaches the form, 
or gives the impression of the melody of the original, the more satisfactory it is, and John Payne's attempt to render the quatrains in the lilting measure and with the wealth of complicated rhymes characteristic of the original would have been in the right direction, had the English language been adapted for such a tour de force. Unfortunately, in order to accomplish this, the translator was obliged to resort to grotesque transpositions and combinations of words, and the first requisite of a translation was largely sacrificed. English words took the place of the high-sounding parlevi, but the compound was not English, and the attempt was valuable, if for nothing else, to show how impossible the task. Many translations of Omar have been put forth since Fitzgerald's paraphrase was launched on the sea of popularity, and most of them have followed his modest course in copying simply the arrangement of rhyme and using the plain iambic pentameter, and this unanimity of procedure is based on sound common sense. It gives ample scope for felicity of phrase and is in exact accord with the genius of the English language. Mr. Eben Francis Thompson, the latest adventurer on this wide sea of exploration, has come back with a richer cargo than any who have preceded him, unless, and this is quite improbable, some new manuscript source should be discovered. He has swept into the whole range of poems attributed to Omar Khayyam. No one knows better than Mr. Thompson how considerable a proportion of this material is imitation and not original. There is no known test, no known touchstone of style or content, or chirography or tradition, or anything to which a rubai attributed to this poet may be applied and labelled. It is almost wholly guesswork, and unfortunately, just as the English version of Fitzgerald lends itself most readily to parody, so the original is verse so admirably adapted to expression of thought and feeling that its form is typical. It is therefore probable that there are numerous serious parodies in Persian which might well have been written by Omar, and yet which arose centuries after his body had crumbled to dust under the yellow roses of Meshed. Mr. Thompson has put into English verse this whole body of Persian poetry. It is a marvel of close translation, accurate and satisfactory. He has succeeded in doing exactly what he set out to do, to add nothing and to take nothing away, but to put into the typical quatrain, as determined by Fitzgerald and others, exactly what Omar and his unknown imitators said. He has taken infinite time, patience and pains to do this work and it was well worth doing. The manifold repetitions and replicas, differing from one another only by a few words or a line found in the variant manuscripts, he has relegated to the footnotes, but the body of the book contains all the Omaresque literature. It has been a labour of love, absorbing and fascinating, and yet endlessly trying, and at last it is accomplished and is given to the large body of Omar lovers not in any way to compete with or rival Fitzgerald's unique masterpiece, but to interpret that, and to show what Omar was beyond and beside that. Fitzgerald version is no more definitely Omar than any other divan of verses attributed to him. Some of them may be, most of them probably were not, but they are all penetrated by the spirit and philosophy of the tent-maker, witty, cynical, occasionally pessimistic, imbued with true oriental fatalism, but brave and wholesome if properly understood. Mr. Thompson has given us the chance to read what Omar and his school really thought and said, 
but he has put this into a satisfactory form also, with much aptness of phrase and beauty of expression. As such, it is worthy of commendation to all lovers of Omar. Nathan Haskell Dole Preface Omar Khayyam was born in the first half of the 11th century AD at or near Nishapur in the province of Khorasan, Persia, and died 1123 AD, 517AH. The precise date of his birth is a matter of conjecture, but it probably occurred in the period from 1030 to 1040 AD, although some accounts make him a schoolfellow of Hassan ibn Ali, better known as Nizam ul Mulk born, it is believed, in 1017 A.D., and of Hassan i Sabah, who died 1124 A.D. If these accounts be correct, Omar lived to the age of 106 years, and Hassan i Sabah died at 107, a circumstance so remarkable that it stands not within the prospect of belief. We are compelled at the same time to dismiss the tale of the schoolboy compact told in Fitzgerald's introduction, however reluctantly, since it seems that the wasaya or testament, giving the account, was not written by Nizam ul-Mulk, but by a descendant some twelve generations after. But whatever the doubts as to the exact date of Omar's birth, he probably reached old age, though the verse in Quatrain 467, A hundred years thy grace hath fostered me, must be taken rather as an exaggeration of poetry than as a sober statement of fact. In Quatrain 20 he says, Seventy-two years I've pondered day and night. And in Quatrain 771, My life's reached seventy years. If I do not rejoice this moment, Ah, when shall I pray? And elsewhere makes allusions to his age, so that if the Quatrains have weight in determining the question, Omar outlived the psalmist's span. It is reasonable to suppose that he had passed the age of thirty when, in 1074 AD, 467 AH, according to two authorities, Ibn ul Atir and Abul Faida, Omar was appointed upon a royal commission of eight persons by Malik Shah to reform the old Persian calendar. During this term of office, which continued until the death of the latter in 1092 AD, he compiled the astronomical tables known as Zij-i-Malik-Shai. Omar's reform of the calendar consisted in ascertaining more exactly the length of the solar year and an improved system of intercalation. If the statement of mathematicians is correct, it is a strange commentary upon the era in which we live, the age of precision, that the calendar which contents us should be less accurate than that of the old astronomer of Khorasan eight centuries ago. The province of Khorasan, situated in northeastern Persia, and which has been characterized with more flippancy than truth as being, in Omar's day, a half-barbarous province, was one of the richest divisions of the kingdom at that time, and formed the nucleus of the expanding empire conquered by the Seljuk Turks, Togrul Beg and his brother and Lieutenant Shakir from the Ghaznavids, about the middle of the 11th century of our era. Chakir died in 1060 AD, and Togrul three years later, and was succeeded by Alp Arshlan, his nephew, under whom, and his successor, Malik Shah, the empire attained the highest degree of prosperity and splendour. Khorasan, aptly called the Land of the Sun, 
by reason of its mild climate and generally fertile and productive soil, was the very heart of this material and intellectual uprising, and Nishapur, its largest city, the birthplace of the poet, was one of the great cities of the Orient, the centre of a prosperous activity well named the Gateway of the East, lying as it did directly upon the caravan route from India. The city, one of the oldest of Persia, was a centre of learning as well as of trade, having no less than eight colleges, while its population was variously estimated as from 200,000 to 400,000 inhabitants. Alas, today the mountain-girt plain, where once stood the magnificent city, is covered by stretches of ruins, amid which cluster the meagre dwellings of less than 10,000 souls. It is perhaps not wholly a matter of surprise that Persian civilization of Omar's time should be misunderstood today, for too frequently we forget that then, when Europe was but just emerging from her long night of intellectual darkness, Persia was the very focus of a civilization equalling any that the world had then known. Omar's poetical works were probably occasional rather than formal, and most of his known writings treated of scientific subjects. They are as follows. 1. Rubaiyat, Quatrains. 2. Demonstrations of the Problems of Algebra. 3. Some Difficulties of Euclid's Definitions. 4. Zij-i-Malik-Shahi, Astronomical Tables. 5. Handbook of Natural Science, Title Not Known. 6. el Khorn Wal-Taklif, Metaphysics. 7. el Wajud, Metaphysics. 8. Mizan-ul-Hukum, Scientific. 9. Lawazim-ul-Amkina, Natural Science. 10. Demonstration of the exactitude of the Indian methods of extracting square and cube roots. 11. Arabic Poems The first three of the above we have, the others are only known to us by name. Much of his philosophy was of a nature to challenge the hostility of the orthodox Mussulman, and his manuscripts were doubtless the object of the destructive zeal of the pious. It is small wonder, then, that the reputation of the poet was obscured by that of the astronomer and mathematician, and that the seeds of his poetry and philosophy should have lain dormant in the dust of eight centuries, hidden, save to the few, only to germinate and spring up in renewed vigour and grace of flower, fragrance and fruitage under western skies, sweet in the main, but with an occasional bitterness and pungency most stimulating. Edward Fitzgerald's brilliant paraphrase of less than one-tenth of Omar's quatrains was the first work which gave to English readers some knowledge of and aroused an interest in him as a poet and philosopher. Fitzgerald's wide departure from the text of his Persian original, while amply justified by the splendour of the result, had nevertheless an influence upon subsequent translators, so that with the exception of Mr. Edward Heron Allen's prose literal translation of the Bodleian and other Fitzgerald originals, some two hundred quatrains in all, no version of any considerable number of quatrains hitherto published has been uniformly literal or close. The translations of Mr. Winfield, Mr. Garner and Mrs. Cadell, which deal with a portion of the quatrains, are highly poetic but free versions. In characterising them as free, I do not desire to be regarded as implying that they do not interpret the spirit of the original. 
or that in many instances they do not render with fidelity its letter but rather that reverence for the persian text has been often made secondary to the poetical beauty of the english version mr john payne has made a version containing a larger number of quatrains than the others mr payne has necessarily subordinated other considerations in attempting to reproduce the metrical scheme of the original and as far as the nature of the case admits he has succeeded in doing this in a manner impossible to a less accomplished persian arabic scholar than he a strictly literal translation of Kayam is hardly possible for the reason that there is no received text and the verbal variations are so numerous a metrical version seems to be essential i have attempted to make a translation which while not literal at every point may be said to be rather along the lines of close rather than of free translation i have followed save in a few instances the iambic pentameter used and made popular by fitzgerald the length of this line corresponds more closely to the persian rubai line than perhaps any other the rubai quatrain or four-line stanza has from ten to thirteen syllables in a line and rhymes in the first second and fourth lines and occasionally in all four each rubai constitutes a complete and distinct poem in itself and in this form is purely a Persian invention. I have in all cases endeavoured to give the essential meaning of the original, but where metrical considerations have compelled paraphrase or departure from its letter, I have generally given a literal translation in a corresponding footnote. No complete version has hitherto appeared. I have included all the quatrains in the various manuscripts and published texts cited elsewhere, so that this translation comprises a large number of quatrains not hitherto translated into English. In the case of variant readings, I have adopted that which seemed to me best, giving in the footnote all important variations, and since the translation is not accompanied by a Persian text, no necessity exists for following the arbitrary divan order or alphabetical sequence of rhyme endings, and as each quatrain is a separate poem, I have not grouped them in accordance with the subject matter, but have rather striven to emphasize their individuality as in the original. The minor and obscure quatrains, some of which have been given merely for completeness, I have placed in an appendix. In translating them I have dealt with them somewhat more freely than with the others, as one source of their obscurity, or triviality, is the delight of the Oriental mind in subtleties which we of the West may not always appreciate. I have, in some instances, endeavoured to indicate the word-play of the original, but most of it is utterly untranslatable, and the instances given are merely by way of illustration of an interesting feature of Persian poetry. The quatrains may be classified in relation to their subject matter as follows. The Bahariya, poems in praise of spring or nature. The Firakiya, where the poet complains of separation from the beloved. The Hajj, or satires the halya or shikaya iruzga complaints against fate for the wretched condition of the poet kufriya where the poet slanders the prophet praises wine or uses expressions hostile to the law charas hob an invective against the inhabitants of a town munajat addresses to deity any attempt to epitomize the character of khayyam as shown in his writings would be a difficult task so varied and contradictory are the quatrains. Written at different periods, covering a long life, 
they doubtless often express his passing mood. Possessing that quality of universality which is characteristic of the highest genius, he has been claimed by all the sects. Nicolas hails him as a mystic, and places upon his eternal hymning of the grape a mystic interpretation, claiming that Omar sang of wine as typifying divine love, rather than the cup. The truth, which loves a golden mean, doubtless lies between these two extremes, for while Omar often used the word in its most literal sense, many of the quatrains can be most justly interpreted mystically. The fact is that Omar was the laureate of good fellowship, and sings oft times what less gifted mortals feel, but do not seem to have the power to express. And one of his great fascinations lies in the fact that from across eight centuries we seem to hear in him a voice which sounds the protest of today, and that is one of the reasons for the high popularity which his writings have attained. His strong human sympathy and audacity in dealing with theological dogma, no less than the keenness of his wit and the bitterness of his mockery, also tended to his popularity. He who attempts to make a complete translation of the poems must necessarily include many that are inferior, and it would be strange if, in dealing, as this work does, with more than 1,100 different quatrains, a considerable number, trivial and obscure, were not included. It should be said that Omar followed but the custom of his age, and that wine was as much an accepted theme for Oriental poets as spring or love, and that very likely the preponderance of such quatrains is in a measure due to the additions of later scribes and imitators. So too of Omar's invectives, it should be borne in mind that he lived at a time of bitter religious controversy, and that his attacks were not so much directed at religion itself as at the hypocrisy of the mollahs and at formalism in religion. In addition to the obligation which every student of Persian is under to those who have preceded him, my special thanks are due to Mr. Nathan Haskell Dole for his generous interest in and examination of my manuscript, to Professor William E. Storey of Clark University, to Mr. Charles D. Burridge, who has placed at my disposal certain texts and authorities, and to Dr. Lewis N. Wilson, librarian of Clark University, who has generously loaned to me copies of otherwise inaccessible texts. After my translation had been completed, I availed myself of the services of Mirza Ali Kuli Khan, who assisted me in the matter of variant and preferred readings, and I desire to express my obligations to him. I am also indebted to the work of Dr. Arthur Christensen of the University of Copenhagen for some of my references. Worcester, Massachusetts, September 16, 1906 End of Section 0